Boom! Welcome to today's episode. Got the podcast really popping off now. Apparently got 180 regular listeners and other people dripping in and dripping out again. Couldn't think of the uh, verb, dripping. Coming along for the ride occasionally. Dipping, dipping in and dipping out. That's what I meant. Anyway, so uh, today's episode, we're going to talk about a few different things. We'll get into identity politics, freedom of speech and all that fucking wank. It's quite a boring argument. See, because it's something that seems so self-evident, especially if you're one of these people that try to define yourself by uh, uh, being someone who supports freedom of speech. My friend Michael, who you've heard on these podcasts, uh, he said it's like making the highway code a huge part of your personality or, or or crossing the road, looking left and right and calling yourself a road safety warrior. But there are, I mean, there are people uh, who think that our freedom of expression, something that we say is an intrinsic Western value that it is being, is being corroded, but we'll get into that. Um, sorry, I'd say over the can of Diet Coke. Might be people shouting outside because I think they're doing um, tree surgery down the road, cutting down some of the trees there. I once swung from Nanny Shirley, who's uh, my best friend Louie's nan, who used to have a little wart on her face. <laughs> And Louie used to, when the, the her TV was on the fritz, Louie used to go up to her and uh, turn her wall as, as if he was adjusting the dials on the TV to get a better reception as a as a little visual gag there. Nanny Shirley, she used to come up. She used to give us a lift to and from senior school and come up the alleyway in her uh, dressing gown and slippers and tell us off in front of all our schoolmates if we were running a bit late. Um... Why did I get onto Nanny Shirley again? What are we talking about? Oh, yeah. When I was doing landscaping on a garden, we was with uh, an ex-convict and uh, he swung from the tree with one hand and had a chainsaw in the other hand and just uh, swished the uh, the chainsaw around to uh, cut, cut all the branches off. I accidentally... Uh, soared through the branch that he was clinging onto, and uh, and fell. Me and my dad saw him doing roadworks as well, and he was holding the the what's that called? A is it a a jackhammer? No, it's a jackhammer. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jackhammer. Yeah. Pneumatic drill. That's it. Uh, he was holding the pneumatic drill with one hand without any safety goggles or anything on. One of those reckless people, you know. And, um, yeah, so we'll get on to that conversation. I'll tell you, first of all, about my Patreon. You can. It's, it is horrible to have a begging bowl in front of me, but uh, thus is the current economic climate. Uh, If you are independently wealthy, have loads of disposable income that you don't know what to do with it, or you're dying and have no family, reroute a little bit of that bunce into my pocket and I will make sure you're getting your money's worth. So far, I have four wonderful uh, patrons, patrons, 
Christopher Luffman, ML Omar, Martin McDonald, and Jane Pickering. And I regularly engage with um, with them on 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 Twitter and stuff. And they're they're a lot of fun. They're they're really good to chat to. And so thank you to all of you. And I hope you feel like you're getting your money's worth from the Patreon. I, I put in um, uh, conversations and stuff that I filmed, uh, recorded quite a few years ago, talking about addiction and stuff like that. And uh, there's, there, there, yeah, I'll keep doing more of them. Bonus podcast episodes, bonus vlogs, all the good stuff. So if you enjoy me and enjoy my content, I just can't get a bloody enough of me. Then go to Patreon, Pope Lonergan, and there's a, a three different tiers, so you can decide what you'd like to, uh, what you think I'm worth. So identity politics. Read a good article in Harper's called "Non-Conforming Against the Erosion of Academic Freedom by Identity Politics" by. Someone from Cornell University, a professor of comparative literature, romance studies and cognitive science at Cornell University. So it is, being against identity politics to them is a, a probably quite a privileged uh, position afforded to them by their their status in society, um, even though they, they at the top they speak about being the uh the, the 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 first to go to university a first generation academic within their family so their parents didn't get beyond um secondary education like senior school so it's not like they necessarily necessarily inherited privilege but they you know they're teaching at cornell mate it's ivy league but they make good points about identity politics uh, I'll read them here we sh all should have the right to evade identification individually and collectively what's more identity politics as now practice does not put an end to racism sexism or other sorts of exclusion or exploitation ready-made identities imprison us in stereotype narratives of trauma in short, identity determinism has become an additional layer of oppression, one that fails to address the problems it clumsily articulates. Sorry, the doors just come. Fucking yes, mate, post. I get, uh, I, I actually get adrenalized, G'd up and high off of postal delivery because uh, when I was a, 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 a drug addict and ordering drugs off of the internet, off of verified, legitimate uh, sites, with European uh, uh, GPs signing off on the hydrocodone tablets, they'd get delivered by uh, Royal Mail or DPD or any. Uh, and these 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 postmen, these delivery people, became unwitting drug mules. So as a, a residual thing, as a holdover from that, it becomes a. Uh, a social cue that triggers my um, my dopamine receptors because I equate post with drugs. And also, that's why I keep buying books because I love reading. I love getting a book. 
I, I love holding a book in my hands and the the, 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 the design of the book and in, enjoy it as an object in itself. And I like the whack when it comes through the door. And uh, it means I've actually got something to look forward to if I know one's coming. Because that's my whole life. My whole life, I need something to look forward to. So we'll pick this apart a little bit. It's saying that all people should uh, all people should have the right to evade identification. So if you're, uh, you know, some of certain sexual orientation, ethnicity, etc., you shouldn't feel like you are speaking on behalf of everyone who is, for instance, gay. You're a multifaceted personality. Like Walt Whitman said, we contain multitudes. So you don't want to be distilled down to one facet of your character. But then also, people uh, feel there is strength in numbers. And if they're a minority group that is a, a repressed group, um, they, 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 want to, they want to feel part of a collective and of a lineage because it makes people who have been repressed feel emboldened feel like they're they're um they're part of something that can overhaul discriminatory discriminatory practice uh, within a white imperialist society tripped over discriminatory 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 at the tree surgeons wordplay mate you get it all so he bung over a free queer go on come bung a couple of quid my way i'll do a bit of wordplay or as i like to say word gay because i also mentioned gays just some of the uh the gifts you will be receiving and in short i Identity determinism has become an additional layer of oppression, one that fails to address the problems it clumsily articulates. It's what me and Lou Sanders uh, listened to the Lou Sanders podcast, The Cuddle Club, and listened to my episode, because this is something we mentioned about how there's inherited trauma and certain people are biologically predisposed to exhibit certain behaviours, like with addiction. Um, but how that knowledge can sometimes imprison you uh, within a within a cycle of behaviour and repeating behaviours that in previous generations have fucked them up, fucking done them in grim prop. Ah. Spoke on a, I spoke on a podcast yesterday. I couldn't remember. It was a really good one. It was just coming out soon. It was like a lot of fun. It was like I had a bit of a game show vibe. And there was a bit about drunk behaviour. I couldn't remember any interesting drunk behaviour. Like I was never into drunken debauchery or druggy debauchery or hedonism. Like I took, I used to drink to piss, meaning I used to drink until I wet myself, sometimes while I was out. I didn't even have to be asleep to do it. Um, and I used to drug to uh, uh, total mental collapse, sometimes going like 18-day benders. 
But a lot of it was solitary. I mean, if I ever did venture out and go to parties and used drink and drugs in the social capacity, it was mainly just to uh, get access to, uh, to, 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 to enable me to procure more drink and drugs. But then I, so instead of doing a drinky one, I'd done a crackheady one. And it was, I might have told the story before. Met a guy called Films. Asked him why his name was Films. He said, because he bloody loved Films. He's in Philly. Two guys were on a stoop. One was dead. The other one was a pornography in his mobile phone. That other one was Films. Films seemed fine. Went back to his house. Don't really know what the theme of the interior decor was. His tarpaulin and blood a theme. Quite a lot of that knocking about. And his opening gambit was to show me a big necrotic gunshot wound on his thigh. Um, love what you've done with the leg. Your big gaping wound leg. His girlfriend or woman in the house. Don't know how she was related to him. Uh, she grasped him up. She said he's been nowhere near a shotgun. That's just a diabetic ulcer. No story attached when it comes to diabetes. He is shit at it. Showed me the wound, asked me to dip my hand in it. I said, nah, that's that's fine, mate. Nah, you're, you're good. You're good. Uh, he said, I, and then because I he's a bit tweaking, a bit scary, didn't want to say anything to make him kill me. I said, what about infection control? We must adhere to that in your crack den. He said, he's fine, just sandwich bag your hand. So he went in the kitchen, looked for a sandwich bag. Couldn't find one. Thank fuck, that's as good a deterrent as any. He went, nice, fine. Let's go shopping for a sandwich bag. So went shopping for a sandwich bag so I could sheave my hand and dip it into his diabetic ulcer to prove he had a good amount of wound depth going on. Didn't find a sandwich bag, um, but still went back to his to let the, 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 the crack subside. And um, ended up watching female gymnastics on Sully. And Little League Baseball, which they, with kids. So what they had about, they show that on the TV in America. They televise it. Like where I come from, the football uh, club, the kids one is called Rady Boys. I'm showing a Rady Boys match on uh, on, on TV. But, um, so yeah, that was my drunk behaviour story, but it's more, more drug, drug behaviour. There's birthdays. I didn't get around to telling this actually. On my 18th birthday, rather than because I didn't have, I just didn't have enough friends to go all out and um, have a big bash. I only had uh, Louis, Michael, and Jack and Tom. Jack and Tom are the Jenkins brothers. So I turned up at Louis's um, house and about 11 o'clock and I was, I'd, I'd been drinking on my own in the day. So I was at the headache stage of being drunk. So I started with a headache and then they were tired. None of us could be bothered or had any money to do anything. So we carried on drinking and we thought, well, let's make it as depressing as we possibly can. So we played a game of pass the parcel while listening to an aqua compilation, but the karaoke version without any words. So it's like done with a panpipe, a panpipe version of Barbie Girl uh, while playing Pass the Parcel with raw bacon. That turned out to be the prize. And then I I, I passed out and, and wet myself. 
got a taxi home three in the morning while someone's coming out and I soaked in urine another bit I didn't get round to oh yeah it was about facts that are a waste of space in your brain I was going to do the fact I know about a ganglion like worms don't have a brain they have a bundle of nerve cells like a ganglion it's called a ganglion sorry and have you ever heard of anencephaly? It's like these little, like, squadged frog children. Sorry, that's really disrespectful, but that's the only way. And there's, they've kind of got big bulbous eyes. They only live for, like, a day. It's sad. It's like a, it's a, uh, a, a, a birth defect. Right, a defect even seems insubstantial because they actually, they have no brain. They don't have a brain. That's why their head's all squadged in, because there's no brain to hold up the head. They only have a brain stem, which still generates a very, very limited amount of mental activity. And there was a big case, a court case, I think, that rolled on for a while in America around this idea of personhood. So, And if someone is... Uh, is born without a brain, but only a brainstem, are they technically a person or an object? I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, um, you know, you gave, yeah, it's, I mean, you when you give birth to that, that exactly just then, there, I just said that, I meant him or her. But, but, but can, I don't know, so, or is it just like a vase? Could you use that little that little squadge kid is like a an like an ornament. <laughs> this is really horrible. I'm sorry. The next bit's horrible as well. It wasn't me who said it. So I, when I was in um, uh, work, one of my colleagues, who was uh, she she was she wasn't she wasn't an intellectual and academic like she she has like my mum her schooling kind of stopped at. at senior school and she went straight in to nursing so the real surfeit of kind of emotional intelligence um but but you know was it wasn't wasn't an academic or didn't go down the normal collegiate route and when we were talking about this and i said i described a, a, an encephalitic child child and what, what they are she said uh, oh well like it's like a worm I went, no, not like a what she went. I don't got no brain, is it? So it's kind of like a worm. That little kid's like a worm in it. And I went, yeah, I mean, kind of is. <laughs> it's pretty much a worm. But worms are living things. I believe in personhood. I save worms all the time. I scoot them up, pop them into the safe space. Sometimes they're in a safe space for like fucking ages, though. So you're just a man walking along. Oh, no worm. Oh, no worm. But usually people would look at me, look at the worm and say, uh, that's odd. That's that's a stark visual. That's that's a weird thing I'm seeing. But they see me and who I am with my hand out holding the worm and just go, yeah, that's very much you, my friend. Um, so back to this article. It's probably going to be a long one today. God, we've got a bit, a bit of a preamble. Uh, and in this article for Harper's, if you remember, that identity politics, it says 
our willing accommodation. Sorry, I think my mum just talked a minute ago as well. So if there is the disruptive sound, blame it on blame it on that little circle. Our willing accommodation of the flattening logic that makes complex social life tractable to computer algorithms, the constant mental reshaping to which we subject ourselves through instant communication and individualized mass media and the profitability of selling data generated by internet users have all contributed to the success of identity politics. I had a conversation with another comedian uh, where I spoke about this, this idea of flattening uh, nuance, which I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to find now. And, um, and uh, cancel culture, which a version of cancel culture exists, I believe, but not not necessarily in a way people uh, say it does. Like no one has a right to a, a, a particular platform. I don't say you're brand ambassador for Tesco. You come out and you say, uh, "Oh, I am." I hate Filipinos. <laughs> I hate Filipinos. Sorry, um, and then you 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 get you 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 lose your job. There's just a, you know you you have the freedom to express yourself in a way, but there's repercussions to what you have to say. So it it's um, is it right that the person lost their position as brand ambassador? Yeah, probably a good call because uh, that is going to make Tesco seem like. A, 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 a intolerant, intolerant brand, uh, intolerant brand to a small minority of people who make up their market share. So I, I said, but that that binary Manichean world of good and evil that we see online is such an unforgiving, terrifying world, because if you only have two choices, the hem border or limit between them is so thin that anyone is at risk of teetering over the edge and into the badlands and it could happen anytime so a everyone is always on tenterhooks which is how people feel at the moment when someone does breach that line between good evil for even a minor lapse in judgment people jump on it with such relish because they're like thank fuck it wasn't me i live another day and B is such an infantile way of looking up, look, looking at the world, gathering up all human experience, bang your hands together, and everything is in two D. So that that's that flattening um, logic, and that thinking that we've suddenly solved it with these online uh, trials, not even trials, online uh, pylons. Well, really, it's an anachronism. It's a return to pre-enlightenment. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's more, we're more attuned to social engineering and moral piety now when with a touch of the old-fashioned Puritanism. And, and people like me, who consider myself left-wing, I'm resistant to acknowledge this because it's an argument that's been co-opted by the right. And now that moves me on to my next thing I wanted to talk about. So Sweden's having a weird moment because Sweden didn't have any lockdown. I think it was one of the only countries that didn't. 
um, they decided instead to pass uh, ma- management of the pandemic onto local healthcare authorities instead of big government social engineering. So now, because of that, right wing libertarians who believe in small government intervention, they're applauding a democratic socialist country. Even though in a lot of other ways, they're completely at odds with each other. Because they're libertarians, right wing libertarians are opposed to big government intervention. But at what point do they start supporting the socialist forms of community organising like radical municipalism, which that passing it on to um, local healthcare authorities, that's kind of a form of that. Mutual aid, cooperatives, promiscuous care, again, something you can read about in the Care Manifesto, the politics of interdependence by the Care Collective, where I'll be speaking to next week for my own book. And that's when I lighted upon a left wing libertarianism, because I consider myself sort of culturally libertarian in some ways, in that I I am a uh, free speech absolutist, but I believe there needs to be consequences to your speech. And that if you say something and a consensus builds that what you've said is uh, is, her- is like harassment or hateful or this, that, or the other, then unfortunately things are going to happen to you and, 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 and that's your own fault. Um, so kind of like allowing people to do whatever they want while also trying to incentivize and demonstrate the reciprocity of local communities. So I'm a really big, huge believer in care-forward community organising, in constructing a community in a way that we care for one another, we create cooperatives, we create mutual aid, we do all this kind of stuff uh, for for, for each other, probably in a more localised way, as it's just easier to organise. And I suppose socialism is when you're scaling up on that idea, but to the level of big government, which I don't necessarily uh, think is... um, I mean, they can kind of act as... The big government can act as a a mediator or or just uh, someone who has, like... uh, a government a government version of editorial oversight that they can just look over all these small pockets of municipalism or cooperation etc and uh, and and check that things are functioning normally but they don't actually get final say they can give guidance maybe i don't know um but then yeah there is a there is a hypocrisy as well to the freedom of speech argument and saying you know defining it as a republican value like they do in france um and the hypocrisy of using the freedom of expression argument and reaffirming its status as an intrinsic western value is in they use it to silence cultures that aren't aligned with our own so cultures that don't put the preservation of uh, freedom of expression front and center by reaffirming our belief in it as an intrinsic value, 
we then use it to get them to shut the fuck up. So like middle certain Middle Eastern countries, like we 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 it's it's like it's like we adopt a freedom of expression so so I can tell you to shut shut up. I have the freedom to tell you to shut up and shushy now. That is the hypocrisy there. And I've, I've there's a book, it's got to be a provo- provocative title, but it actually makes some really good points. Is is free speech racist? Uh, Gavan Titley. <laughs> Titley? Very titly. And that um yeah, that's that, that's one of the inherent uh, hypocrisies of it. Same with like Lawrence Fox asking all his fucking followers to boycott Sainsbury's uh because they came out in support of I think I think it's they came out in support of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matters, and, and we know there's a uh there's a there's a market we know there's a kind of what's the word I'm looking for? A I mean, it, yeah, it's 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 driven by market logic. Why they did that is probably quite disingenuous, but um, and hasn't isn't 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 steeped in real ideological conviction. But uh, either way, you know, I'm glad it's better to be said than not said. And then Lawrence Fox is on the freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is saying no, but not that kind. If he's got a black hue, I do not want a word from them. Uh, yeah, we're about to come to the end of this one. I'll tell you a quick story if I can. I'll try and do it quickly. I once went, met the director, Mike Lee. I loved Mike Lee. I had posted him up in my room. Um, and where I was on ecstasy when I met him. And that creates a full sense of connection and over familiarity. So I went up to him and said, you've got a face that looks like it's stuffed with packing nuts. He just looked at me, so I followed with I followed up with like a sorry dipped out there. Um, yeah, actually, I'll make this a longer episode, supercharged episode today. Why not? Got a few more things to say. Got a few more things to say, mate. Free no expression, anyway. Okay, well, you okay? So you've got freedom of expression. Um, so you know, use it wisely. Uh, what exactly is it you want to say? I want to say that I, that I want to be able to say whatever I want to say. Okay, we've just given you that authority. You have freedom of expression. The floor is yours. Now, please, what do you want to use this freedom of expression for? I want to use it for for for, for the things I'm going to... I like saying. I like saying things about words. And I think that I don't have the right to say... Okay, you have a right to say it now. You can. I've ceded the floor to you. This is your platform. Use it wisely. What have you got to say? I want to say I am in a loveless marriage, and I don't know how I got it, and I don't know how to get out of it. The people of love of God help me, Governor. That's a love of fucking God. Let me do myself in. <laughs> Ah, oh, and that was play for today. Brought to you by Titley. Okay, uh, so yeah, the Mike Lee story. So I went up to him. I was on ecstasy, and actually going to see his play, which was titled Ecstasy. He wrote it thirty years before, but it was a modern day showing, um, and it was very good. I went to go. Said you, 
because I was over familiar and, and drugged up, I said, uh, you've got a face that looks like it's been stuffed with packing nuts. He just looked at me. So I followed up with, like an Amazon package, as if that would make it better. But And then I registered that he was maybe slightly hurt or, or, or worried. So I finished with, and I've got a lot of time for that because I love, I fucking love Amazon packages. <laughs> Me and Mike Lee. And then another thing I didn't get round to on my uh, on this podcast I recorded. Worst thing you have ever won, won anything. I once, when I had an operation on my bowel and my ilium, and that to fit a catheter, and the nurse, uh, when I woke up, uh, told me that it was quite difficult because I, it was one of the tightest u- urethras that she'd ever been in the presence of. So I didn't win anything, though I acquired some uh, new information about my urethra. And I think that's like when I took ecstasy for the first time, I was sitting in my house with Dominic at uni, banged back about six pills minutes after my parents left, spent the rest of uh, uh, the night sitting in the garden fucking about, and I used tweezers as urethral forceps to just get it open to try and get out even just one droplet of urine. I had such bad urinary retention uh, and it was awful. Um, What's the other thing? Burning grudges. Every other comedian I wrote there. Also one comedian who I love and respect and like on a personal level as well and who I will probably email after to say that I've not named this person, but I have mentioned this because uh, it still sticks in my craw. Uh, I, 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 I did one of his gigs and it, I'd bond. I just died massively. Nothing. No one. Never happens to me because I'm so bloody great, but just no one went for it. And he like patted me on the shoulder after and went, yeah, sorry, mate. It's a bit of an intellectual crowd. I thought, oh, you fucker. You fucker. That still boils my piss. I've got a book deal, mate. How's that? How's that feel, eh? How's that feel, mate? Didn't even do any A-levels. It still annoys me. And it was quite an intellectual crowd. It's like when I went, oh, uh, what do we know about Quakers? Usually every time someone goes, porridge! Uh, this time... Uh, I went, what do you know about Quakers? Man in the front row road. Well, they were actually uh, a, re- a big part of the Underground Railroad during the ante- antebellum period, uh, transporting the slaves from the south to the north. Uh, and I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, you've done this on purpose, didn't you? You know I needed an easy, simple answer. This ain't your moment, mate. Ain't your moment to flex your little knowledge about Quakers. You want to go toe-to-toe on Quakers, mate? I'm here for it. I'm here for it, but not now. Not now. Nah, not now. Not now, mate. Trying to show me up. Pat me on the back. Fucking grate your lips off, all right? But I've completely forgiven him. (laughs) 
I am actually. I don't know. Ooh, I'm, I'm going to message and see if uh, I'm, I'm going to see what he says. But I don't know if it's starting an argument unnecessarily. So really, it hurt. It was very hurtful. Um. So. So, uh, but yeah, uh, other things I did want to talk about. So I read a brilliant article again in Harper's. See, mate, I read Harper's called Elder Abuse by Andrew Cockburn and about the problems within the care sector in America. But it also identifies problems that are a part of our system, the UK system. And said, like, people, so for instance, people. Uh, during the pandemic are saying that we need to shift to this herd immunity or something like that and protect the elderly behind a metaphorical um, sunscreen or brick or like put them just we need to look after the elderly keep them safe I said but the thing is there's so many uh, holes in a uh, in 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 the, the neo so neoliberal privatization craze that swept through Western world over the past forty years, including uh, in the nine in uh, the the nineteen ninety when Margaret Thatcher privatized nursing homes, and where many have since fallen into the hands of private equity, and because. Those nursing homes and the private companies that own them are only really only worried about their bottom line, truly about profit extraction. They will cut corners left, right, and center. It's for profit companies. They won't give raises to their staff, they won't give sick pay. There's a high turnover of staffing and staffing shortages, severe critical staffing shortages because of the amount of burnout from staff members and how they're mistreated and run off their feet. And there's no incentivization other than for a lot of carers, the, 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 the love and compassion they feel for the people they care for, but then that's, they're taken, that's taken advantage of. Oh, I hate them. I hate them. I hate the private companies. I hate the people who run them. I think they are totally amoral, truly. The ones who run, not not the the not the kind of mum and pup ones. They 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 can um, be run by really caring, caring people who are in the business for the right reasons. So because of that, uh, and their refusal to plug the gaps in staffing, if where 75% of deaths from the coronavirus have been in care homes, nursing homes, even if we implement this new strategy where we we really focus our and concentrate all our resources onto that, inevit- inevitably there's going to be massive flaws in that because there will be staff members who will uh, be forced to lie about whether they've got it, even if it's asymptomatic, whether they're a carrier or not, because they won't be compensated for doing the right thing and staying home and self-isolating for 14 days because they won't be paid for that. They can't pay their rent and they will uh, be at risk of getting booted out. And in this article, it says, however, an arid 
statistical table published large last year by the World Health Organization suggests a more fundamental truth. It tabulates the number of nursing home beds per 100,000 people in each country. Sweden scores very high, 1,276 per 100,000. Britain is also high at 847. The same computation puts the United States at 515. Greece, on the other hand, whose citizens tend not to be put uh, whose citizens tend not to put their elderly relatives in homes and still regard their care as a family responsibility scores a mere 15. The disparity in casualty rates are equally striking. In terms of death per 100,000, Sweden's rate is 53. United Kingdom comes in at 66. United States, 39. Greece, meanwhile, despite having the largest proportion of elderly people in Europe has so far escaped with them with a mere two deaths per hundred thousand. One might almost conclude that the death toll that has so traumatized and destabilized much of Western society in 2020 was not wrought principally by coronavirus, but by nursing homes. Ideally we might emulate the Greek family relationships and arrangements or move to Greece to grow old and abandon the institutional care approach in favour of a model where the bottom line is not the driving priority. However, it seemed to me that the most important factor was that Rosedale, which was a care community, a mum and pup care community in Cincinnati, which, uh, which, instituted um, modifications to air conditioning etc really really early on didn't listen to the government took it upon itself and apparently it's run by a just like a single family company have it seemed to me the most important factor was Rosedale's believes that it is important to see things from the perspective of residents and the staff who care for them Rosedale and his sons have all spent time working as certified care assistants, the bottom of the chain of command, the, bo- uh, the, the bottom of the chain of command, very far removed from the financial engineering background of industry supremos. Another thing, yeah, the top people are the ones who have been amongst them, been the bottom people. So they get they get the pressures, they they, they get the problems. And that is the biggest thing of this pandemic is the abject failure of profit-making, privatised care homes. Fuck you, Margaret Thatcher. Fuck you, the governments who are unwilling to change this. Fuck everywhere. And any one of you who is a CEO or director of this company and still awards yourself a £2.2 million bonus, fuck you. Fuck you, you greedy, venal piece of shit. But when I ask to speak to them for my book, uh, I'm going to be chummy. I've got a way of doing it. I'll find out where the HQ is, find out where the nearest bakery by their HQ is. I write them an email. I pretend that um, uh, I'm, I'm a local and that uh, I'll write something along the lines of, oh, yeah, I jog past every day. And then I usually get my uh, donut from Giffords, or whatever the bakery is called, around the corner from the HQ. Uh, I'm thus undoing all the good work I've made in running. Chummy, chummy. So I can uh, 
getting there under the radar and tell them to shut up or after they stop speaking so I do need some words for the book but thank you very angry episode long episode and a lot to say I'm all hyped up on Coca-Cola Patreon remember go Patreon if you want to you can cancel any time as well I won't love you any less um, but there's a lot of free content on there that I hope you like and um, love you all see you next Tuesday or I might if something happens do a bonus episode like the Queen dies or something 